Welcome to the GMC Podcast, the regular place where you can catch all the sermon series and other highlights from the team at GMC, Gillespie Memorial Church in Scotland. Thanks for listening. This podcast brings you wisdom from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapters 9 through 11, from the sermon series, The Overflow of Grace. But before that wisdom from God's Word, let's just take a moment to still your hearts and come before the Lord our God in prayer. Let's pray. Father, in this time of prayer, we thank you for your love, which has no beginning and knows no end. And we thank you that though we cannot see it or prove it, Your love, even as we pray, is alive and active in the world that you have made. We thank you, Father, for the love which not only gave us life, but also in Christ gave us new life, new hope and a new joy. We thank you for every moment when we are once more made aware of your irrepressible love and your extravagant mercy. We thank you for those who by their words and deeds have made Christ and his love real for us. For every opportunity you have given to us to speak of Christ and to name his name. We thank you for those whose kindness and generosity and faithfulness have opened the door of faith and hope to others. And for those whose lives are light in the darkness, stillness in the storm, strength in weakness, and Christ to their neighbour. And we thank you for those who stand with the fallen, those who wait with the dying, who comfort the grieving, those who enable the powerless to cope and who are Christ to those to whom you send them. Lord, how can we not thank you and praise you and worship you? Forgive us when we fail to do those things. Take our hands and wipe them clean of every selfish action. Take our feet, Lord, and change the paths of self-interest that they love to walk. Take our lips. Take away the judgment words that slip out too easily. Lord, take our ears that we may no longer listen to gossip but only to what is pleasing to you. Lord, take our eyes that we may see the suffering of our neighbours and not simply the things that affect us. Take our minds and transform our way of thinking, Lord that your will and the needs of others may take precedence over our own. 
Lord, take our hearts, the centre of our being, and reign in our place as you were always meant to do. Forgive us and renew us, for we ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. And so we come to God's word from Romans 9, 6 to 13, from the New Living Translation, the NLT Bible. Hear the word of God. Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily the children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. This son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of scripture, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Give thanks to God for the reading of his holy word. To his name be praise and glory. And now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts be acceptable. For you are our Lord, you are our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever been lost? I mean physically lost, I mean proper lost, off the map. Perhaps you've taken a journey pre-Satnav days and followed followed a map and read it wrong somehow, maybe had it upside down and ended up not where you'd intended. What did you do? Perhaps you backtracked to a point you recognised, maybe very near the beginning of the journey which helped you then get on the right road. Or maybe, like me, you've ended up scattered somewhere, not quite sure where you are, detached, if you were, with a group of others maybe you were travelling with. A story, years ago I was an army cadet and uh, we went on summer camps and this one summer camp we were on a military base in Wiltshire and we were out on... Uh, maneuvers. It was a two-night, uh, three-day, two-night maneuvers. And uh, all the cadets from different parts of the UK who were there were split into three platoons and there was a seeker force. And we'd got, we'd got a goal to reach and the seeker force was there to stop us. During one night as we were moving, we, were, we hadn't kept, uh, broken into a camp, but we came under attack from the seeker force and in the seeker force were regular army guys who were out I guess to scare us put us under pressure uh, scare these teenage kids who kind of didn't really know what they were doing all the time and during this attack uh, 
blank rounds, of course. Uh, the platoon, we became split up from one another and we took cover. One group ran into open ground over a field and carried on. And another, which I was in, split into nearby woods to cut what was a very long night into a shorter story. We'd moved in different directions, we got separated, and we were lost for an hour or so. Um, it was chaos, but we needed to carry on the mission. We needed to come back together. And what brought us back together was a radio communication, but more importantly, landmarks. There was radio communication between our half the platoon and the other, and we agreed a place we'd passed earlier a landmark, uh, a rendezvous we knew we could all find, a place of agreement from which we could then gather and go in the right direction. Why the story? How is that of relevance to this morning? Well, as I've said, sometimes we land in the wrong place. Having taken a wrong turn, we need to go back to the place where the mistake was made and start all over again. We need to find ground, if you like, that can be trusted, a good jumping-off point, so the journey ahead can be solid and lead us to the correct goal. And that's what we're hearing from Paul in today's reading. And we'll continue to hear about in the coming weeks. Paul is going back to a beginning point and starting again. The story of Israel was often recounted among the Jewish people. It explained the sequence of God's actions in the history of the nation of Israel right up to their then present day. But what happens if they'd made a mistake in their navigation of the story? What happens if they'd misinterpreted, misread the map? Paul is going back to the beginnings of the story knowing that he had misread it. As a Jew, he had misunderstood. But now, through the revelation of God, through meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road, he was clear that God's intention through Jesus was that Jesus was the Messiah. And he wanted to help others find the right way, the right way to understand the scriptures. Basically, if God's relationship with humans was first primarily through the nation of Israel, and in that story led to the revelation of God in Jesus, and God, Jesus' intervention in human history through his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, then Paul's question is, why do not all of Israel, all Jews, land on the same point on the map? And that point is knowing Jesus as the Messiah. So Paul needs to go back. He needs to understand where the mistake was made. And in today's reading, he starts to tease that out. Because the map, so to speak, isn't wrong. The map is the word of God, the scriptures. They can't be wrong. I'm hearing echoes of people saying, really? The scriptures can't be wrong? These two to three thousand year old writings by lots of um, different writers, over 40 writers, 
into all the books of the Old and the New Testament, they can't be wrong. You might argue in your mind the possibility that Scripture might be wrong, that God made an error. Or maybe some people might say, oh, perhaps God changed his mind, or he'd been unable to do what he wanted, what he intended. But if that becomes a line of thinking, then I believe that thinking truly brings someone into a place of being lost. Because if you can't trust Scripture, can't trust the Bible, then there's nothing and nobody you can place your trust in. Everything that Paul speaks of, that he writes, is based on God's promises. And those promises are in Scripture. And if his Scripture is in error, then those promises fold like a, like a, a house made of cards. One tap and they fall. Listen again to what Paul writes. Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? Has God failed? And then, immediately, emphatically, Paul writes, no. Perhaps you are of a different opinion. Perhaps you see the chaos in the world, the large number of issues we have in our world, as evidence that there is no one truth. This week just passed, on Thursday, it was Earth Day. Earth Day, in its kind of modern format, has been around since the the very late 60s, early 70s. How much progress have we made? There are so many issues in our world. But is there one truth? Or actually, is there only the law of the jungle, survival of the fittest, where anything goes so to speak if that's kind of the view it's humans in charge and uh, it's kind of dog eat dog then the scenario becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if you don't believe in God truth his plan and instead wholly rely on human planning for the world then the result is chaos and the law of the jungle And it just self-perpetuates. It's self-fulfilling. But Christians believe differently. That is, it is humans who are responsible for mess. And to accuse God of not caring is a serious blunder at best and really is just a projection that we blame him for our own errors. As I said last week, these thoughts that Paul is musing on matter to us today because as Christians we need to understand our relationship with God and the place of Israel in the story. It also matters to those who don't know Jesus, who aren't Christian, because understanding God history gives the context that Jesus is not just for the religious. People outside our church walls can look in and say, oh, they're a pious bunch, but it's not for us. That's not what God history says. Jesus is for all, for those who are called and will accept him. And so listen on to what the rest of this passage says to us. Because the premise of today is simply this, that Israel believed it had favoured nation status that it was chosen by God and that it continued to receive that blessing through descent. 
But Paul clearly says, no, that's the wrong turn. That's the mistake on the map. Not on the map, of misreading the map. Favour comes through God, yes, through his promise and his choice, not through natural descent. Paul says, by birth. In other words, we don't inherit God's favour by dint of our DNA. So Paul's thesis is that has God failed in his promise to Israel? And the answer, I've already said, was an emphatic no. The proof of which is that not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. A remarkable statement. And then he backs that up with stories of Abraham, Sarah and Hagar found in the book of Genesis. I mean, if you want to go read the whole story, it starts in chapter 12 onwards. Abraham is called by God in chapter 12. The Lord says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That's where it starts. Paul's audience, the the Jewish people he's hoping will read this letter, will know this story. And so that's the promise to Abraham. I will make of you a great nation. But Paul has said being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. I mean, how can that be? Surely if you're a child of Abraham, you're one of his descendants and therefore one of his children. How can this be when God has promised to make of Abraham a great nation? The reason is found in Scripture. Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, though Abraham had other children too. That's going back to Genesis 21.12. So Paul is using Scripture here. Paul goes on to say, only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. I guess the argument is this, that Abraham was married to Sarah and that the child Isaac's legitimacy made him the natural line of the nation of Israel. And the boy Ishmael, the son of the servant girl, was never truly a son of Abraham and was therefore not the line of Israel. That's one line of understanding but actually that misses the words of scripture it misses the promise of God the promise of God the word of God if you like is that the nation of Israel is found in God's promise for God had promised for God had promised I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son quoting from Genesis 18:10 and 14. So do you get do you get the subtlety of this here? God did not promise the birth of Ishmael. It isn't that Abraham shouldn't have had any other children. In fact, Sarah, if you go read the story, encouraged it. She encouraged Abraham to lie with Hagar. And so sure Ishmael is a descendant. But the truth is that God's promise is to the child by Sarah, Isaac. 
And if we believe anything from Scripture, God keeps his promises. The blessing of God, his choosing, if you like, his supernatural involvement through his will, his work and promise alone is what God does. But then Paul goes on further with the story. If further proof is needed to understand the story of Israel in the light of Christ, Paul skips up a generation. Just as God chose Isaac and not Ishmael, it says he chooses Jacob and not Esau, the older brother. You would naturally assume in, in, in a family the older child in, in this time period, if you like, was to be the chosen one, the blessed one. But this example is also very different. Unlike Isaac and Ishmael in the previous example, Jacob and Esau are truly brothers. They're twins. They were formed at the same moment of conception from the same father Isaac and the same mother Rebekah. Come these twins. Yet we hear, before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she that's Rebecca, received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. That story, if you want to go, Genesis 25 to 23. And I wonder, are you thinking this is hard to fathom? why the choice occurs. Why does God need to make a choice? Why shouldn't it be Ishmael? Why does Jacob get the nod and not Esau? Why is one elected and the other not? That word election, to elect someone, makes clear beyond what, beyond doubt what is God's purpose and in whom, whose purpose it will be carried out. And the reality is it has nothing to do with the individual. Their works, if you like. It all originates in the mind and the will of the one who calls God. God Almighty. And in this example of Jacob and Esau, it's clear the older will serve the younger. And Paul, in his writing from this morning, makes it even more explicit from words of Malachi. Malachi the prophet. A closing verse said, in the words of scripture, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. That comes from Malachi, uh, beginning of the first chapter. It's, it's in verses two and three of Malachi, chapter one. That statement can be shocking. I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. By quoting the prophet Malachi, isn't Paul charging God with flagrant favoritism, even injustice? Paul is well aware of this charge and will go on to deal with that charge of favoritism, injustice, in the next verse, which we'll hear next week. But we can reflect that Malachi, in speaking for God to correct the thinking of the people of Judah, Malachi uh, was speaking so much later in the 6th century BC, he was writing to correct the wrong thinking about the covenant relationship with God of the people of Judah. 
And he refers back to the love of Jacob and the rejection, or more properly, hate of Esau. For the opposite of love is hate. And so it's easy to think, how can God do this? How can God hate Esau? But the descendants of Jacob, the nation of Israel, as it played out, received remarkable blessings, while the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, disappear into insignificance. What we see in the words of Scripture and in the heart of God is preference. And just maybe we don't like that. It doesn't make you feel comfortable. It makes you feel uncomfortable that God can have a preference. But why not? For a righteous and holy God cannot prefer that that would be against him. That would go against his nature. He can't prefer the unrighteous, the unholy. Think about Jesus. When Jesus spoke about the cost of discipleship, from Luke's Gospel, 12, 26, he says, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Wow, those are strong words. In Matthew's Gospel, they take a softer tone. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 37. Same sentiments. The reality of these statements in whatever form remains the same. That there's a choice. God always first and foremost above everything, above all others, even at the expense of close family. It's about God's call on one's life, one's election, and the expense of that call. And so the reality of the story of Jacob and Esau is that God put the former above the latter. As individuals, yes, but also in the sense that the Israelites... The descendants were chosen, and the Edomites were not. And then it plays out in the story. We're here in Genesis 25. God knew that this was going to happen. That Esau sells his human birthright as the oldest son of Isaac, and he sells it for a bowl of stew because he's hungry. Chapter 25 of Genesis. And then he loses his rightful blessing as the older son, because of his brother's deceit, Genesis 27. This story weaves plainly together the human responsibility or irresponsibility with the story of divine sovereignty and election. And so, in these verses, Paul has started to get back to the original starting point, to pull meaning for his readers and for us today. It's not always easy reading, I won't say it is. But it is clear God has a plan, and a promise, and a will. People may fail, but God doesn't. For what God promises, he always fulfills. And the fulfilment is found in Christ. The fulfilment is a people of God. A church. 
Now, don't get hung up on that word church. Church, it's, uh, the word for it is ecclesia. That's why we get ecclesiastical. Ecclesia, the church. But the church is not a particular denomination. It's not a building. It's the people. It's the people of God. Those that God foreknew. Paul has already spoken of election in 8, 28 to 30, which was previously covered in our last part of the series on Romans. But I just want to read from 8, 28 to 30. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Election, call, justification, glorification. But I'd now add two things when we consider God's election and call. The first is this. Some people say it's a Pauline doctrine, that Paul wrote about this. It's, it's those who want to diminish it, that God calls people, certain people and not others. And they try and explain it away that as not biblical, that Jesus himself didn't teach it, but he did. Jesus says in John 13, 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. In John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I am appointed to and I appointed you to go and bear fruit. And then in John 17, 6, I have made your name known to those who whom you gave me from the world. Whom you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. That is the Lord, God, Father he is speaking about. God has given to Jesus in his humanity those people to work with. So from the lips of Jesus comes this same notion of divine choice. And then secondly, we must know that election is an indispensable foundation of our worship throughout time. As church, worship is central to what we are as Christians. We are called to worship the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our mind, and with all our soul. The word used is love. And when you love, you come to worship. Worship which is neatly echoed in the opening of Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love, and of your faithfulness. Not to us, O Lord, to you, for it is all God. In any way, shape or form, we are responsible for our own salvation. If that's what we think, that we might be justified, 
because of our own salvation, because of our own works, then we could sing our own praise. But we're not. That notion is inconceivable, for it is all God. Paul has taken us back to the beginning to understand it is always God, always him who creates, chooses, elects, promises, calls and delivers. This isn't about God waiting to see who will believe or choosing us because he knows we will believe. It's rather God elects us in order that we may believe. God makes Christians. End of. No amount of Bible knowledge, religious privilege, being the right race, having church membership or outward signs of belonging, coming from a Christian family or anything else guarantees a woman or a man or a child a place in the people of God. Only God does. In a sense, it's what can make ministry so frustrating. Certainly for me. I just cannot get someone to commit to Christ. I can explain. I can show. I can chat through. I can spend time with people where they are, speaking of God, attempting to model how we should live a Christ-like life. Though, of course, I get that wrong plenty. But I can't make a Christian. Only God can, by his promise and choice, by showing mercy and compassion on all who don't deserve it. This teaching should humble us. It should. The doctrine of God's sovereign election and mercy that means my inclusion into the people of God owes nothing to my birth, my education, my own desires, my own actions or merit, my connections. But my belonging actually is simply just from the unconditional love of God. That doctrine of sovereign election floors me. It is all God. It's not fair. In our human eyes. But this is of God. It's not unfair. It's amazing. It is a miracle that any of us are elected. Because election to grace changes your state. It brings you into a new relationship with God. But there are those who will have their hearts hardened. But do you know what? All that is doing is simply handing someone over to the consequences of the state they are already in. And if you worry about it, that some will not find the Lord, you shouldn't. Because no one will be condemned who wants to be saved. Because know this, the tragedy is that the characteristics of the condemned is that they do not want to be saved. Harsh message. But I guess the question for us all is do you know you're saved? And today, if you don't, 
Do you want to be saved? That is God's call to you, his election. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank that you reach down, you touch lives. You touch lives through your presence, through your Holy Spirit, and through your people, through your church, that we can prompt folk to come to you, to find you, to know you, to have a relationship with you through the risen Jesus who died for our sins, that we might be saved. Not just for salvation's sake, but that we might become humble servants of the living God, doing your work of love and mercy and compassion in our world. So, Father, this day, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that we are able to do that. And, Father, we seek your blessing. Amen. Thanks for listening to the GMC podcast from Gillespie Memorial Church in Scotland. For more details about us, visit our website, gillespiechurch.org, and search for us also on YouTube and Facebook. All inquiries can be made through the Contact Us page on our website or through the church office. This has been a production of the GMC team, and copyright remains with the producers of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and God bless.